Well, take your Bibles out and let us turn them to the book of Romans, to chapter 9 once again this morning as we continue working our way through this wonderful chapter of this wonderful book of this wonderful Bible. We'll read verses 14 through 29 this morning. Verses 14 through 29 of Romans chapter 9. And this is God's word to us. Let us give heed to it and let us pray that the Lord will bless it as we hear it this morning. Romans 9 beginning in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, the thi- will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we we do pray for your blessing now upon this part of the service where we sit and expectantly and humbly hear from you through your ordained means of us hearing from you, through the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that that you would speak to us that the one who preaches would disappear and that you would speak to us. We pray that you would help us to hear, help us to to rest in you, help us to trust in Christ, Uh, help us to understand what your Spirit has for us in these words this morning. Uh, We pray that you would give us humble minds to receive and humble hearts to receive. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are coming to one of the most difficult passages in the book of Romans. In fact, one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. But not difficult to understand. This passage, like last week, is fairly straightforward. 
A pretty straightforward message. Now, it is not difficult to understand, but this is a difficult passage to accept. It is difficult for us to humble ourselves in the light of what is taught here and to receive it, to agree with it. I think that's demonstrated by the fact that many in the church, despite the clarity, just refuse to believe what is taught in this passage. In this passage, which runs from uh, the beginning here of verse 14 down through uh, the end of the chapter, and we'll take it in a a couple of different parts, or at least down through uh, verse 29, and like I said, we'll take this in a couple of, of chunks here. In this, Paul is defending the statements that he made back in verses 6 through 14, statements especially regarding God's choice of part of Israel, but not all of Israel, and part of the descendants of Abraham, but not all of the descendants of Abraham, statements regarding God's sovereign choosing of Isaac, but not Ishmael, and of Jacob, but not Esau. And as that comes to the apostle's mind, he takes a short detour from the the main uh, teaching of the passage here concerning the Jews' rejection of the gospel and their rejection of the Messiah and what that means. He takes a detour here to speak a little more about the things that might come into people's mind as they heard this fact that God has chosen some but not others. That not all of Israel is Israel. That not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is part of Israel. That the, that the, the promises that he gave were meant for an Israel within Israel, as we saw last week. And, and all of that makes Paul think, I need to explain this a little bit. And so he takes this short detour to speak a little more, to explain a little more, and to answer objections against this teaching. And of course, for us today, those of us uh, of a Reformed persuasion who believe that the Bible, or what the Bible teaches concerning God's election, His sovereign choosing to, to graciously grant redemption through Christ Jesus to some, while sovereignly choosing to pass over others and, and leaving those others in their own sin, this passage reminds us of the truth on this subject and of the the clarity and the forcefulness with which Paul teaches it. And for us, as Reformed Christians who believe these things, we should just say as biblical Christians, uh, we should just say as Christians who believe these things, this is important uh, things for us to be reminded of, since it is not, it is certainly not, a universally agreed on doctrine, Of course, that doesn't make it any less biblical or any less true, but it means that there are those Christian friends, and you all have them, uh, who, with whom we have discussions about these kinds of things, and and we would seek to convince of the truth of God's sovereignty in election, His sovereignty in salvation, His sovereign choice in the granting of saving grace, and by being reminded of these things, we will uh, prayerfully be equipped as we have those discussions. And Paul's detour into these things begins in verse 14, uh, begins, or uh, continues on down, as I said, through uh, verse 29. 
And in it, Paul reverts to a pattern or goes back to a a pattern that we have seen him use before. He used it back in chapters 6 and 7. He used it back in chapter 3 where he puts forward an objection. Uh, He brings up a question, and a, a question that probably represents something that he had actually run into in his ministry. And having brought forward that question, then he answers it. So he does this uh, question and answer type of, of way to, to bring up these things. And he, will, and he does, as he very often does, bring in quotations from the Old Testament to support the answers that he gives to these questions. And we're going to look, there are two basic questions in this uh, this passage, we're going to look at the first of those questions this morning. We'll look at the second one, uh, Lord willing, next week. But the questions are basically these. Is God just? And how can he blame us if he sovereignly chooses? We'll look at both of those. The first one today, is God just? He begins in verse 14 with his first question. Um, and one thing is, is we, as we look at the question that he's going to ask here, we might think back to the questions that he brought up in, in chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 3 and, and here the questions that he brings up, these two questions, are more forceful. They are almost accusatory. The first question is, in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? In him choosing without, as he said, any reference to to lineage or to seniority and birth, birth order, um, without any reference to works or deeds or, or future works or deeds... You know, not, not being more likely to choose someone whose life is or promises to be full of good works and not less likely to pass by someone whose life is or promises to be sparse in good works or even filled with evil works. Just God ignoring all of that and choosing just as he chooses to choose, is this... Well, let's just say it. Is this unfair? Is God being unjust? Is God being unrighteous in doing so? In doing what we've seen in verses 6 through 13, he clearly does in choosing not according to works, but according to his purpose, his purpose in election. And as I mentioned, this is more than just a source of clarification. This is a a thinly veiled accusation regarding the justice of God that Paul is bringing in for discussion. Paul is not asking that himself. We'll see that he doesn't have any question in his mind about this. But he's bringing, what he is bringing up, the way he phrases this, is, is pretty direct, is pretty harsh. And it's a big deal what he asks. Is God unjust? Is there injustice on God's part? That's a big deal. And it should shock us even to hear the question brought up. God has revealed himself. If he's revealed himself in in any way, he has revealed himself as just and righteous. From one end of the Bible to the other end of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 32.4, he says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. 
a God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is he. In the middle of the Bible, in Daniel 4.37, we read that all his works are right and all his ways are just. And then when you get to the end of the scriptures, in Revelation 15, we read this, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So God has revealed himself as just. And the question here is then, how can that be if God disregards things like deeds and works or promise of deeds and works? If he disregards the very things that we would, we would hold to be among the most important things in choosing someone for a benefit, is God simply being arbitrary? You know, should we picture God in heaven flipping a coin to see who he is going to choose and who he is not? Is he capricious? Is it unjust for God to choose someone to receive salvation and not to choose others, especially based solely on his will? If so, what does that say about God? And if not, then why not? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be, to be right? Whose standard, what standard is to be applied? That's the question. That's all wrapped up here in Paul's question in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? And then, having asked that question, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Writing what God in, in Timothy says the, is the God-breathed Word of God will now answer that question. And it is quite possible that we are not likely going to like it. Our natural instinct will rebel against this. Our natural mind, especially our fallen mind, will hear this answer and will, will not care for it at the answer that Paul gives, even though it is God's answer. And there are many Christians who don't like the answer that Paul gives. But Paul, first of all, as he does in these question and answer sections that we've looked at, gives us first the blunt force version of his answer. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. Now, that sounds kind of straightforward, and if you weren't with us back in chapter 3 when we saw this, and chapter 6 and 7 where Paul uses this answer seven times to answer these questions, let me just mention that this phrase, it's translated here by no means, translates a Greek phrase that the way that it is constructed is really the strongest emphatic repudiation of any idea to which Paul applies it that we see anywhere in the New Testament or in Paul's writings. By no means, not at all. We would expect to see this to get the full idea. We would expect to see it all caps. By no means, not at all, no way, perish the thought, not on your life. Or as the King James puts it, God forbid. Paul is saying that he will in no way, not for a minute, 
not for a second, entertain the concept that there is any injustice in God, in any circumstance, in any context. And his answer reveals much about his and, and our reaction to his answer reveals very much about our own, doesn't it, our view of God. Our reaction to hearing Paul write this reveals a lot about what we think about God. For those with a, vip, a biblical view of God, which I pray and trust is all of you here this morning, for those who have that kind of view of God, there is no more that needs to be said. No more qualification needs to be added to this. We could pull out the six words of Paul's question and put them in any context, in, in relation to any situation. We could set them aside by themselves and not put them in any context, and we must give the same answer. If the question is, is there injustice on God's part, the question must and will always be without equivocation, without ambiguity, the answer is always the same. By no means. Back in Romans 3, uh, verse 4, Paul asked much the same question as he started this chapter with, the questions concerning the Jews and about their salvation, and the question uh, there was, does their rejection, does their faithfulness mean that God has been faithless? Again, a sort of accusation about God. And guess what the answer is there in Romans 3, 4? By no means. And then he adds this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That is, even if every single person on earth said one thing, and God said something different, guess who's right? God's right. He's always right. He cannot but be right. And our job is to accept it. There's that bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No, no. God said it. Believe it. Because it is settled. Right? That's what it should say. You know, we, we don't have to debate, debate this. We don't have to crowdsource it. We don't have to see what the internet says about it. We don't need to do a, a poll, an internet poll. We don't need to fact check it. The court of public opinion on this means precisely zero. But the humble mind, informed by the Spirit of God through the Scriptures, agrees with Paul here. Because God is the same in regard to the Jews and in regard to his choice of whom to save and who to pass by. There is no injustice on God's part when he chooses one and not another. When he chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. When he chooses Jacob instead of Esau. There is no injustice in God because there can be no injustice in God. If we suspect injustice... We need to look somewhere else because we know that that can't be the answer. Because God is never unjust. All his ways, the scripture said, are just. 
His, his ways are the definition of justice. That's the answer to Paul's question. Is there any injustice in God? By no means. Now, if you don't like that answer, you are certainly not going to be happy next week when we go on in this. Now, Paul could just leave it there, couldn't he? he could just, we could just be done. But he doesn't. He goes on, again, like we've seen him do in, in other passages and other situations like this, and he gives support for what he said. And here, his support is from references to the Old Testament. Again, that's not new. Already in chapter 9, he's done the same thing in verses 7 and 9 and 12 and 13. By the way, this is always the way to deal with questions of interpretation. Always go to the Scripture to find out what Scripture means. You have a difficult portion of Scripture, find a clear portion of Scripture that talks about it. Scripture interpreting Scripture. One of the foundational aspects of biblical hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. Paul's going to do that twice in answering this question this morning in two sections that are very parallel to one another. Verses 15 and 16 are the first. Verses 17 and 18 are the second. And in both, the structure is the same. He introduces the quote by telling us to whom God spoke. He gives the quotation from the Old Testament and then he gives an explanation, an explanatory statement based on that quote. So first he's going to reiterate God's sovereignty and show that the sovereign choice of God and his prerogative, his right to make that choice is and always has been not an overreach, but a part of the very nature of Almighty God. He introduces the quote there in verse 15. He says, for he says to Moses, Moses is always a, an important and a, a good um, reference to bring in. This is, this is God speaking to Moses re- regarding this aspect of God's nature by which he makes these decisions on the basis of his own good pleasure. And then he gives the quote. This one comes from Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 19. Now last week we, we came into this section of Exodus as Paul again was using a quotation from here. Uh, last week it was regarding the incident with the golden calf. This quote in, from Exodus 33 comes from something recorded shortly after that tragic event. Um, after God has given all of his law to Moses... The people are still at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, Moses said to the Lord this, and I'll read a few verses here from Exodus chapter 33. I'll begin in verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight... Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, this is God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Here is the God of the universe who said, let there be, and there was, who created every atom in this universe, who created the heavens and the earth, the water and the land, the plants and the animals, and man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into that man the breath of life and created him in his own image. This God, the only God, the sovereign God, expresses to Moses his sovereignty in regard to the bestowal of his mercy. Moses here speaking as the, as the mediator of the old covenant that God has made with them. Says, God, go with us, be with us, and show me your glory. And God says, I will. And then he adds these words to that. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. End of story. Hard stop. No explanation of that statement. And Moses wisely does not ask for one. And it's a great promise to his people. It's a great comfort to his people then and now. But it is God's choice, God says. And now Paul brings that here into Romans 9. Is God unjust by making the statement that he chooses to save based not on birthright, not on birth order, not on any works, seen or unseen, present, past, or future? No. Because it is God's prerogative to show mercy on whom he decides to show mercy. Now, that reminds me, we sometimes think about this discussing the subject of God's justice. And it's, especially with those who complain about it, and it's good for us to remember that the last thing that we want from God is strict justice. Right? If God treated us as our sins deserve, if he treated us according to our iniquities, if he gave us justice, then we are all lost. Because we have all rebelled against God. We have all broken his law. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. And the whole point of God's mercy is that he spares us from justice, from his justice. He spares us from what justice deserves by giving our just deserts to someone else. His justice fell upon Christ so that it need not fall upon you. It will not fall upon you. So, before we call out too strongly for justice in regard to whom God chooses to forgive, we could, should consider what that would mean and be thankful. But still, God's choosing. And even then, God, Paul is saying, is not unjust. Even when he shows mercy, 
He is not throwing out justice. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, but his justice stays put. Because of what Jesus did and because of the Father delivering him up to die in our place and to bear his wrath for our sins, his justice was completely satisfied. So our salvation is just. Good to remember that too. And God's choice of us is just because he is God and because he is able and he does have mercy on whom he will have mercy and has compassion on those whom he chooses to have compassion. And he does so based on his good pleasure. As Romans 9.11 says, according to his purpose in election. And by the way, just because God chooses without reference to anything in us, as Paul is saying here, that doesn't mean that he does so without any reason at all, without any purpose. Because God always has a purpose, and he always acts according to that purpose. He always has a reason for everything he does. He doesn't just act to act. He doesn't just choose to choose. He doesn't, he's not just arbitrary. He doesn't, as Einstein is quoted as saying, God does not play dice. But, as Paul says, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He chooses some to show his mercy to, and he chooses others to pass by for a very, very good reason. And what is that reason? Well, I'll bet you I could bring up any of our young people here and they would be able to answer that question because they know the answer to the similar question, why did God make you and all things? Let's hear it, children. Why did God make you and all things? One more time. For his own glory. That's the answer here. Why, why does God choose some and not others? For his own glory. You say, eh, that's kind of vague. Can you give me something more specific? Well, in that case, I will direct your attention to Deuteronomy 29.29. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's what we get. Faith says that's enough. That is where humility before our Creator comes in. We cannot charge God with injustice because we must credit Him with sovereignty and say, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And so, or so then, Paul says in verse 16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There is nothing we can do to make God choose anybody in particular. The choice is his. That's a truth that cuts both ways though, isn't it? When we're the Jacob, when our loved ones are the Jacob, and God has chosen to show us mercy and to bring us to himself, it's the most glorious truth in the world. 
But when someone we know, someone we love, is the Esau, then it's a tragic truth that we must trust God in the midst of. And that can be one of the hardest things to do. But remember this, that as we've been saying, we don't know to whom God will show that mercy. When we have someone, when you have someone that that you want to see converted, but they refuse and they reject that, that does not mean necessarily, well, then they must not be elect according to God's grace. No, it means we continue to pray for them. We continue to share with them. We continue to hope. Who knows, but that that God wants you to labor long. He wants you to pray much. He wants to strengthen your own faith as his means of bringing your loved one to him later in their life. We don't give up. As long as there is breath, there is hope. And in all of it, We recognize that it depends, as verse 16 says, not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy or who has mercy. Literally, it says not on the one who wills or the one who runs. The deciding factor in God showing mercy is not our will. It's not our efforts, but his sovereign good pleasure. And notice there that that he doesn't say on God who shows mercy, Though that's true, but it depends on God who has mercy. He has mercy. He is just and merciful. And it is up to him when and to whom to show that mercy. Is it unjust that it doesn't depend even just a little bit on human will or exertion? Paul says, by no means. Now, we do have to Listen here and understand. Remember what we're talking about. Don't misunderstand this. We're talking about God choosing to show mercy to individuals by choosing to bring them to faith. We're not talking about, and and some have accused us of this, we are not saying that there are some, that there are any, who, who desire to in their hearts to come to God and to trust in Christ, but who are rejected by God because of a previous decision that God made to pass them by. I said when we were in our Thursday night study and we were talking about this same thing, that there are people who want to come to the Lord, who want to trust in Him, but God says, sorry, you're not on the list. That is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, what did Jesus say about that? Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And our author here, Paul, says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you come, you will be received. You will be welcomed. You will be adopted. You will be justified. You will be saved. What Paul is talking about here is before that. Because we know that the Bible teaches that no one will come to Christ on their own. 
No one can come to Christ unless the Father sovereignly draws him and unless the Spirit first works in their heart. And that's what Paul is talking about here. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Jacob I loved. Is that unjust? Not at all. Now Paul brings in a second support here. Now looking at the other side. Just as as God shows mercy according to his sovereign choice, Paul proves that God himself has said that he also rejects. He also passes by those whom he, by his sovereign choice, chooses to leave in their sin, to allow them to go their own way. And the example that Paul brings forward, again from the Old Testament, is the, the man who is simply known as Pharaoh. Now, there were many pharaohs, of course, kings of the nation of Egypt, but in the record of Scripture, there is one who is such a part of the biblical record, such a part of the life of God's people, that he is simply known as Pharaoh. Now, the specific Pharaoh is never named in Scripture, but he is a Pharaoh, we do learn, who didn't know Joseph, who didn't know that whole story who was not aware of how Joseph, a Jew, saved the kingdom and much of the the world from a great famine. This is the Pharaoh who, out of fear of the sheer number of the Jews, enslaved them and made their labor hard and their lives difficult. This is the Pharaoh who, because of his fear, decreed that every male baby born to the Jewish people was to be killed. It is to this Pharaoh often most accepted to be Ramses II, the God sent his servant Moses. And it is upon this Pharaoh and his people that God sent the ten plagues that ultimately brought about the release of God's people in that event known as the Exodus. After six of those plagues had taken place, and Moses and Aaron came to the Pharaoh again to demand He released God's people, this time with a message that the intensity and the effects on the Pharaoh were going to increase as these go forward, as these plagues go forward. God, through his servants, told Pharaoh this in Exodus 9.15. He says, By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. God's saying to Pharaoh that even in his dealing with the Pharaoh and the people of, of Egypt that he had thus far restrained his hand and had not been as harsh, had not been, the plagues had not been as devastating as they could have been. They could have been destroyed by them. He could have wiped them out with the first plague if he wanted, but he didn't. And then God gives this message to the king of Egypt, and it is this that Paul quotes in Romans 9, 17, and we'll read the quote here from Romans 9 in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says the reason that you are Pharaoh, the reason that you are doing what you are doing, the reason that all of this is happening is for my purpose. There could have been one plague, not ten. But there were ten because God wanted to have ten. He wanted to show his power 
in bringing out his people. God's power in the face of the power of the greatest king on earth at the time. And as a result, it became known throughout the known world that what God had done to the Egyptians. And then, as he does in verses 15 and 16, Paul draws an appropriate lesson from this quotation. And here he expands on what he said above about God being sovereign and showing mercy to some and not to others. Here, Paul says in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now we see not only the the positive, the showing of mercy, the good side, but we also see the negative. And we see that that is likewise under the sovereign control of God, that it is his choice. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now what does that mean? How does he do that? Notice that Paul doesn't even explicitly say here that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, though he implies it, and plus he doesn't need to say it. His readers would have known that Exodus 10.20 does make it explicit. After the plague of locusts, we read, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. But here ends a problem. If, if God actively hardened Pharaoh's heart, then wasn't God causing Pharaoh to sin? And thus, isn't God the author of sin? Perhaps Pharaoh wanted to let the people go, but God hardened his heart so that he didn't, so that he couldn't, so that he wouldn't. Did God actively make Pharaoh sin by refusing to let God's people go? Well, to borrow a phrase from Paul, by no means. God does not tempt anyone to sin. James 1.13 tells us that. He does not tempt anyone to sin, let alone work evil in the heart of any person. Could God have worked in Pharaoh so that he acted favorably to Moses, as he eventually did? Could he have done that earlier on? Absolutely. Just as sovereign, God sovereignly intervenes in anyone's life whom God desires to intervene sovereignly. He could have done the same thing with Pharaoh. Jacob I loved. Could have been the same with Pharaoh. Pharaoh I loved. Could have been something in the scripture. But he didn't. He chose rather to let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. A man like all men, born with a fallen, rebellious heart, God decided to let him act like a man with a fallen, rebellious heart. God let him. Because God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills according to his purpose. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Without a doubt he did. The Bible says he did. And how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, if, as we saw, he didn't cause Pharaoh to sin, how did he do it? Well, a little theological distinction for us here this morning. That's the difference between active and passive acting. If God would have actively hardened Pharaoh's heart, he would have introduced hardness and sin into Pharaoh's heart, and then we'd have a problem, because the Bible says that God doesn't do that. 
But God could passively harden Pharaoh's heart. How could he do that? Basically by doing nothing. How do you harden Pharaoh's heart? How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, how do you let a lion go on a lion-like killing spree? Answer, you open the door to the cage. You don't have to make the lion a wild animal, a killer. He already is. You simply have to open the cage. You simply have to let him off the chain. And that's how God hardens a man's heart, to act in rebellion to God. He opens the door. He gives him a longer leash. You don't have to add anything to him. You don't have to add anything to his heart. It's already deceitfully wicked. It's already full of the love of the world, already given over to evil continually. And if you want him to act that way, you just take your hands off. You take off the leash. And when you do, when God does, the fallen man will act like a fallen man. And if God removes enough restraint, a man will act like a sinner on steroids. And that's what happened with Pharaoh. That is what God did to Pharaoh. Because in Exodus 8.15 and Exodus 8.32 and Exodus 9.34, we read that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by allowing Pharaoh to continue to harden his own heart against God and his people for the purposes of God. Showing his power so that God could intervene, so that God could, could work and show the power of his mighty right arm so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, he did this, kids, for his glory. And that's God's prerogative. That's his right as God. It is in line with his nature. And he cannot deny his nature. He is as free to accept one and to reject the other as he was to accept Jacob and reject Esau. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't depend on him who runs or him that works. It depends on God who chooses sovereignly. God's choice of Isaac and not Ishmael, of Jacob and not Esau, his choice of an Israel within Israel, his choice of those whom he will sovereignly call and those that he will not is, in the final analysis, up to him. That's the point. It's not the way we would do it, which is probably why this teaching doesn't sit well with many people. It may not be the answer that we want to hear. I warned you of that at the beginning. But it is God's word on the subject. By the way, what does this knowledge, what does this do to our call, the call of the church to preach the gospel and to evangelize the lost and to go into all the world and make disciples of Christ? What is this knowledge that God is the one who sovereignly chooses? What does that do to our call to preach the gospel? You know the answer, not a thing. Not a thing. 
the message of Romans is the message that the power of that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe and our charge is to put that out there for all to hear who will and who will not believe it that is God's concern not ours we couldn't change the heart of a single person in the trial of a thousand years God has to do that, and God does it according to his sovereign will. And what about man's responsibility to all of this? We haven't even talked about that, have we? The subject has been strangely absent from Paul's discussion. Well, if you've been waiting for that, that will change. He'll address it in some later verses. But God's choice of who he will call to himself is just that. God's choice. And it is just that. God's choice. Our reaction? Beloved, let us adore him who chooses. Let us give thanks to him who has chosen us. Let us worship him. Let us give him the glory which he is due. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we are particularly humbled as we think on these things. Because, Lord, in, in these, this discussion, in, in this passage, the, the line between creator and creature is very stark, is very clear. We are reminded that you are God and we are not. And Lord, all we can do, all we should do, all we must do, Father, is to say, you are God. And you are just. And you are merciful. And we thank you, Lord, that in your mercy you have looked upon us and you have said, I will call that one mine. We pray, Father, that you would help us to handle this in discussions with others, Lord, that we would handle this properly, wisely, lovingly, remembering that we ourselves are the beneficiaries of your sovereign and gracious choice. In Christ's name, amen.